0: Welcome, welcome, welcome. How's everybody doing? Hope you are doing well. My name is Andrew Kuhn, Focused Compounding. Sitting next to Jeff Cannon. Jeff, how's it going today? Uh, it's going well, Andrew. How's it going with you? It's going great. We hope it's going great for everybody else as well. If this is the first time you're tuning in, hit that subscribe button on the iOS apps, uh, whether that's through the podcast app on iPhone or Spotify. Leave us a rating or review. It goes a very long way. And follow me on Twitter, which is at Focused Compound on Twitter. So in today's podcast, we are going to be talking about a topic that is very interesting to me. Okay. And it's this idea of active reading. All right, Every time you read, you're very big on active reading. And we've yeah. talked about active reading a little bit. We've used it in our Mental Models podcast. Um, but I think it's just so important for investors. We consume so much information, yeah. whether it's reading newspapers, reading blogs, reading magazines, reading other investor write-ups, mm-hmm. stuff like that. Um, but it's so interesting because I feel like a lot of the information that you do read is really consensus, right? Okay. If you think about it from like the Wall Street Journal's perspective, right. they don't want to, I guess, cut off half of their viewership because sure. they have such a strong held belief. And I know people probably think, well, there's CNN, which is the Clinton News Network, or you know, Fox, you know, so like there's <laughs> biases uh-huh. when it comes to that. But I do think that majority of media that people consume and that people read, it's very much like, um, you know, two sides. I would say, okay? Okay. And I'm going to go through these different models. And I heard a venture capitalist talk about the way that he thinks about all the information that he consumed a while ago. And it's always, for whatever reason, really stuck with me. So I thought, why not um, talk about today? Because I was actually talking to somebody this past weekend, a buddy of mine, Clark, and I was just kind of talking through these different models that I have, this framework I have in my head when I'm reading information to Mm -hmm. pull try to pull insights out of it. Because if you're just reading on autopilot, you're not getting anything out out of it. And I know Munger always talks about having these models in your head. um, And I guess these are my active reading models. And I uh, took this away from Josh Wolf on Twitter. And I thought it was just great. He was on a podcast and he's talked about, but it's always stuck with me. But he was talking about how majority of the information you consume daily. So whether that's the Wall Street Journal, Financial Times, um, USA Today, stuff like that. It's really Scott... Fitzgerald situations, the um, writer best mm-hmm. known as Ray Gatsby, he mm-hmm. had a famous quote when he said, the test of a first-rate intelligence is the ability to hold two opposing ideas in mind at the same time and still like remain the ability to function, not go okay. insane. Yeah. So I think a lot of, in my head when I'm reading like the newspaper, which I do read every single day, I get a digital copy through Bluebird mm-hmm. on my iPad, um, a lot of the information in there is that. A lot of front-page right. stuff is that. So people could say... Gold, silver sure. is a, a store of value, and other people could say it's not, right? Mm-hmm. Um, Bitcoin is a store of value. Other people right. could say it's not a form of currency, stuff like that. A lot of the information you consume is very much like that. Um, so that's the first thing that I keep in my head when I'm reading through all these uh, you know, different, uh, I guess, Pieces of material, stuff like that, is a lot of it is kind of just like they're going to play both sides of it. Okay. And okay. just to really understand that. The second model that I keep in my head comes from Mark Twain. And this is what Josh also talked about. And it's the famous quote It ain't what you don't know that kills you. It's what you know for sure that just ain't so, mm-hmm. which was the opening scene in The Big Short. Okay. If you can remember that, which I thought was very interesting. So what I'm trying to do, and, uh, you know, Josh talked about this as well is what are the things that everybody is predicting to continue in Sorry. the future um, that could have like a massive information surprise, right? right? So basically, what do people know for sure that might be wrong, right? What's the right. consensus? I mean, where markets really, and stocks in general, have massive moves is when there's some sort of informational surprise, mm-hmm. right? Sort of the non-consensus and, and, and right and stuff like that, um, or wrong. Right. So that's the second model, the framework I'm thinking through when I'm constantly, you know, reading information. If it's even a 10K, for example, or investor presentation, stuff like that. And the last one comes from Schopenhauer, which was a German philosopher. And he says talent can hit a target that nobody else can hit, and genius can hit a target that nobody else can see. So this this is the true, like, asymmetry, a secret that nobody else knows, um, stuff like that. So when Mm -hmm. I'm consuming all this information, I really, a lot of stuff I read is, okay, this is the consensus this is what right. I'm thinking. People kind of expect this, but I'm looking for the things that people think will continue in the future mm-hmm. that, um, you know, may not happen. That's the stuff that I'm trying to think through when I'm reading all these different uh, sources, whether it's the newspaper, blogs, all sort of things like that. So I'm kind of curious to hear, because you always pull these insights like out of left field where I'm like, wow, we just read the same thing, but I feel like we didn't read the same thing because I didn't think about it like that. Okay. So I'm kind of curious. I mean, a lot of that obviously comes from pattern recognition, mm-hmm. right? You've, you've seen the story many different times. But you also do different things when you do read 10Ks. Right. You mark things up yourself, mm-hmm. right? Um, if you read articles, you print them all out and yeah. you mark it up. Last time I was at your place, you had a paper copy of the Barons sitting there. So yes. I know you started reading Barons a lot right. too on the weekends. So I'm kind of curious, like for the things that are looking or that you're looking for that just stand out to you. And we've talked a little bit about this in the past, but I'm just really big on active reading, having these frameworks in your head to know what to look for. Okay. Um and we've talked about like with a business, for example, if they talk about they compete on price, that's a huge mm-hmm. tell on their whole business. Right. Right. So I'm kind of looking for these other heuristics, if you will, to really get to the meat and bones of a situation.
1: Okay. Um, So I think I read differently than just about everybody in that when I talk about active reading, I'm talking about printing something out and marking it up with a pen, everything, underlining stuff, circling stuff, whatever, Um, writing notes in it, which are not notes about um, summarizing what I'm reading. Butter notes in reaction to what I'm reading and trying to take things out of it. The other thing is, I avoid reading a lot of newspaper-type things and stuff like that, where I think it's more. Um, I'm worried about getting too much information that might bias me about stuff. That's just noise. It's not they're they're repeating things that other people have said. I prefer to read things where they have kind of a. Uh, I'd rather read something where they have a strong opinion that I think is wrong. Um, that's original, then read stuff that they're repeating what other people are saying. So like you were saying, the consensus thing, the stuff I don't read is the consensus stuff, I find that the least useful, because they'll all agree, you know, they, they'll kind of take for granted certain conditions, right? Whereas if you read things that someone is doing a more independent analysis of it, even if they're coming at it from a slanted vantage point that I don't agree with, they're going to at least introduce some things that are totally different, mm-hmm. right? Um I The other thing is I don't care what their opinion is or if I can summarize it and stuff like that. I'm just reading it to get information from it, and that's all that I'm doing. Um, you know, uh, That's my biggest worry when telling people to read an investor presentation or something. The danger is you read it the way management wants you to read it instead of just taking out the information that's mm-hmm. in it. And I'm really just interested in the information in it. Um, I've said before where I've gotten good ideas that we've acted on stock ideas – they're as commonly from things where a person. It wasn't that they were saying short it, but they passed on it or they just decided that it's interesting, but not interesting enough or whatever. And I decided that it was something that we should buy a lot of. Um, so, you know, you're reading it for a somewhat different reason than they are. Mm-hmm. Um, I like to focus on specific things as much as possible. So, for instance, in reading books, I almost always read um, business histories of specific businesses. And then you get the general stuff that you learn from that. General ideas about business, microeconomics, whatever, you take out of whatever lessons they learned in that case. I don't really like reading things that are uh, more general stuff that are supposed to be teaching you that. So in general, I would uh, not be reading like uh, uh, Porter's Five Forces kind of stuff. I'd be reading something that kind of – illustrates that through a specific historical example so like i was telling you i read the book on ebay and stuff that's the kind of thing that i'm interested in you learn a lot more about um whether it's network effects or auctions or a startup or whatever, a uh, manian dot com stuff. By reading a history like that about a specific company, often than you do by like reading more general stuff. That's something trying to cover the entire dot com boom or something mm-hmm. like that. Yeah. So like
0: an actual case study of eBay, for example.
1: Yeah. So almost all the reading I do is that biographies of 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 actual books is biographies of specific investors, biographies of specific entrepreneurs, and and um, what are essentially business biographies, just stories of one company. And I like the ones where they fail and stuff, too, or they rise and fall and stuff. Those are, enjoyable. Those are my favorite. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Mm-hmm. Um, Billion Dollar Mistakes is mm-hmm. the book that I really liked.
0: Um, okay, so what about when you're going through, you know, a 10K then? So they talk about different things. They could say different things. Right. Are there any sort of tells that ever stick out to you? I mean, so a lot of times I know, like, you'll put an actual nation point. Yes. Or, like, you'll put hmm. next to some stuff that right. you may not agree with. I mean, is there a general thing that sticks out to you? that is
1: usually in that pile? Yeah, so one of the big ones is you have to separate the, the given thing that you have, you know, t- what you call, technically call a datum, from what's surrounding it in terms of the context they're providing. So for instance, we just talked about the um, orange grow in Florida. In that case, they said that while there are imports and stuff, they're somewhat protected from that by tariffs. The other way to look at that is their current results are because there's a tariff. And the danger, the risk is actually that the tariff goes away. That's very common in 10Ks. They often present as a risk something that actually is great. And they present as a positive something that's actually a really big risk. So like customer concentration. Right. So like, you know, um, customer concentration could actually be a big benefit. Um, you know, we're subject to possible antitrust litigation and stuff could be telling you we have a monopoly. Um, the reverse, you know, um, can be a negative too. Um, so, like, for instance, with the risk thing, it depends. A lot of times, they'll explain that there's a risk that they're a controlled company. Um, they'll explain that there's a risk that they're they depend on the services of their management. Mm-hmm. But if their management owns a lot of stock, was. F- involved in founding the company whatever they're probably going to be there for a very long time so actually it's telling you we they may be telling you we have a strong management that's likely to stay here for a really long time i mean berkshire Hathaway would say we depend on the services of warren buffett and would have to be saying that for half a century Mm. so that could be a really positive thing and often they're reversed um it's presented in a different context yeah same thing as we're having a great year well we're having a great year means that things happen this year that are unusual and are those things going to reverse um a really big one is uh I talk all the time about trends that are self-reinforcing versus self-defeating. Eventually, you know. So commodity type things are always self-defeating. Um, eventually what will happen is whatever's going well for the commodity business now will in fact sow the seeds of the eventual destruction of that and then vice versa. Um, so you know, if they say, Isn't it great that production is down, it is, but everyone will then uh produce more to later. Yeah, to, to balance it out. Exactly. So um, you, that's one of the big ones. And then the other one is like, the trend is it reinforcing itself. So in the eBay thing, that's a great example. Everyone knows that with network effects, it reinforced itself. Time and again, in that book, they said people checked out other auction sites in the early days. eBay's own employees checked them out and said, wow, they're really good. But there's no one here because everyone was on eBay. So everyone would just say, in reviewing them and stuff, well, they're great, but you're not going to have enough buyers and sellers here, so don't worry about it. eBay is good enough, you know? Mm -hmm. Uh, Not that eBay was worse, but that once you had a place where all the buyers and sellers were, that's where you went. So, you know, that's something that reinforces itself, right? And that's something that- Becomes stronger as it goes on. Yeah. And some things do that. So when we're talking about commodity things, sometimes economies of scale and stuff do that. Sometimes certain consolidation in the industry does that. But um, the forces that drive earnings this year don't. Like, you know, we were just talking about bank things and stuff. You know, banks, some banks will present it as really good news that their funding costs went down a lot and stuff, which is, you know, true. But they also don't necessarily say, okay, well, one, are those funding costs going to be normal for us in the long run? Mm-hmm. But two, if the cost of, you know, basically... Uh, very short-term money, which we depend on to finance our operations, got cheap. So too is long-term money, and we're now going to have to make loans that are going to be at the lowest lower rates, and eventually we'll lap that stuff. And and you know that will be will hurt us with lower you know um, margins on the that, lower yields from on it right that right now. But yeah, yeah, and so it's more complicated, you know. But the so you always look at that when and ever anything has got really good results or really bad results, you look into it and kind of think about what does this really mean and will it keep going. Mm-hmm.
0: yeah it's funny I think about a question that Buffett was asked once at a Berkshire meeting and he was just talking about I think it was actually on how to read financial statements and Buffett was basically saying "It's like we're just trying to get to the data we're trying to get to the meat and yeah. bones of it there's a lot of different things in there but it's just trying to pull the data out of it and I think just learning how to learn learning how to think learning how to read is just very important and sometimes people could be like okay they say you know read a 10k but somebody with experience is going to pull something out um or pull more out of it most likely than like a novice would. For Yeah.
1: Example. I mean, accounting stuff is the best and having summary historical financials is the most useful. I think Buffett's kind of said that, I, that, you know, he would trade, you know, getting 50 years of historical data on a company he'd much rather have than seeing any projections about the future and stuff. And that's true. I mean, for all companies, what I would like to have and don't have is historical financials from the beginning. Um, even though I'm looking at company today, it's very useful to have incredibly long ago um, information on it and to just have it in um, a summary that way. Or yeah. like
0: if the CEO has ran a, a public company in the past, right before Edgar is like, I wish I could get my hands on those financial statements.
1: Yeah. And accounting stuff is good because for the most part, when you read through the 10 Ks and the footnotes and everything, you can get at the data without management presenting in a lot of different ways. And you can find things that way. I mean, when we talk about the active stuff about it, I'm always doing ratios that management doesn't present. So, um, now some, well, even something like banks, some banks now do actually talk about, they're very few, but talk about what their, um, like non-interest expenses as a ratio to their deposits or their earning assets um usually it's presented as the efficiency ratio which is relative to revenue which is fine and like both of these are highly correlated um but i prefer like an idea of how cheaply you're sourcing your your you're funding your balance sheet basically so i think that's a good way of thinking about it i calculate that i calculate deposits per branch you know things like that all the time um and that's not always given information, uh, but it's it's stuff you can calculate for yourself. Um, so like the Alco one, uh, they don't disclose how much they make on management stuff technically per acre and stuff, but they actually break out the segment. So you can just calculate it on – they tell you the number of acres that they're doing and the number and the amount of profit they make each quarter on it they never put them in the same place to say it, but you know what the management fee is by looking at that, you know? And then I calculated the management fee as a percentage of the theoretical fair market value of the land. So I was like, okay, if you're collecting 100 or $200 an acre to manage an acre, um, and an acre is worth 8,000, what is that? And is that a reasonable management fee and stuff, you know? Mm-hmm. And those are just logical things to calculate and calculate lots of ratios like that. What
0: are your thoughts on, and do you think value investing in general or investing with the value mindset is non consensus in itself uh,
1: y- yeah I think yes but I do worry about the consensus consensus among value investors I do worry that a lot of value investors do follow a consensus that is um, a subgroup of the overall population but you know I mean if you think about it either liberal or conservative, is non-consensus with most of society, but it can be a consensus within its own tribe that way, and people can, you know, um, adopt the same views that way. And I think that happens often with value investors, Yeah.
0: How much of your investment process is understanding the narrative? So when you talk about you've some of the best ideas that you have found has been when somebody has written up a stock and they may explain why they're not buying it or why they don't like it, and you kind of decide, well, actually, I don't think that's true. I think this is a, an interesting idea, and you 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 know go forward and buy it. I mean, how much of your process is understanding
1: what other people are saying on the other side of the trade? Yeah, I think the key. Th- I don't think it matters at all what's on the other side. I think that's irrelevant. Um, people try to figure it out and stuff. I've, in many of the best purchases I've ever made, I have no idea what they're thinking on the other side. Still, don't know. There's possible explanations. I'm not sure if they even make sense. Um, like, why do I really think that something like uh, Village Supermarket or J and J Snack Foods was cheap? You know, twenty years ago. I think just money was going into dot-com stuff. Mm -hmm. And I think we can come up with all sorts of theories about that they thought online grocery was going to grow or that this was going to happen or that. But I think there's only so much money that people are managing. And if they're throwing all that money at dot-coms and Cisco and stuff, it has to come from somewhere else, you know? Mm -hmm.
0: Um, I just wonder, because I guess logically to think differently, you may want to understand what the consensus is, what a lot of people are thinking.
1: Yeah, uh, people say that, that and some investors happens. find it very useful. Mm. I don't, I think, I do think about it, but I'm not sure it's ever been useful to think about it. I think that my guesses to what people are doing may not be right anyway, and I may be fooling myself. And I also worry that just because other people are wrong doesn't mean that I'll be right. Um, it, what I mean is if you read a short report on something, and it's really bad, it can cause people to think it's really a poorly written and poorly reasoned analysis that may make you think that uh, that may reinforce your belief in being long the stock, but it shouldn't, you know, the same way that a um, really bad uh, defense of, you know, some defendant in a legal case or something doesn't really shouldn't really make you think that the prosecutor's case is better. Um, And that does worry me a lot. So, I mean, I do it sometimes. I wish that I didn't do it at all. I just think that in general, people spend way too much time worrying about what other people are thinking in the stock market. It, it doesn't really matter. I mean, I think if you think about the Mr. Market analogy, really you should be acting completely independently of what, why people are doing what they're doing. And it shouldn't matter to you, especially if you're investing for the very long term. So I, I think of it more as a f- finding the right frame am I looking at the business the right way to think about its value and long-term value creation, things like that. And it's true that your frame is going to be different than other people's, I guess, if you're going to get a really big opportunity to make a lot of money. Unless it's just like an obscure stock or something like that, or it just is hated right now because of some overhang, or it's a panic or something like that. But generally, yeah, I think that's the important thing. But that's the way I think about it, is like finding the right frame for understanding the company. Mm -hmm. Um... And that often is things like, do you look at it, say a cheap stock, do you look at it as if it's going to liquidate all this land and stuff or do you look at it as if it's going to reinvest in other stuff? Um, things like that. So, you know, bank examples. We tend to prefer banks that retain a lot of their earnings and earn higher returns on equity and trade at higher price to book ratios and have lower dividend yields. Um, that's a framing thing. Perhaps the reason why we do that is in reaction to what other people buy. That because people do focus on um, lower price to book mm-hmm. and don't necessarily care that there's not value creation because the company's paying out almost all the dividends then maybe that's what creates the opportunity for us but from my perspective honestly I don't I don't know that I need to know why an opportunity exists I can just take it as a given that it does exist
0: mm-hmm. you know um, will banks always trade at 10 times earnings
1: I don't know um There, if you read certain investment books and things, there is a theory that banks should trade at fairly low multiples, and that's often assumed in a lot of cases. Um, it doesn't make sense necessarily. It should trade at the same amount as the index, but the argument would be that banks should not trade at as high PE multiples as good growing businesses because they don't grow that much because they don't retain much in their way of earnings, and because due to capital um, levels, they there is a cap on how much they can earn in terms of their returns on equity and stuff. However, if you take a basket of stocks, the net effect of everything that they're doing generally is not generating higher returns on equity than, than um, banks. Um, it's sometimes reporting higher reported returns on equity, but that's not the same thing. Um, so like an index, buying bank stocks at the price you're talking about in an index, you're not going to do worse than the bank stocks. So it's kind of an argument that doesn't, Makes sense that way, but it does make sense if you think that an index is a mix of very loved stocks and very hated stocks. Maybe you could argue that banks, their valuation differences are more narrow. Um, But at times, bank stocks have been very cheap and insurance stocks have been very cheap. And some of it is around a perception that they should be valued on price to book. Mm. Got it. Uh, Getting back to
0: the framework. So why do you read Barron's? What are you trying to get out of it every week? Um, is that more of just like, you know, investing is what you do, it's your
1: life. So it's kind of more like... So I've gone back and forth. It. It? I don't have a subscription to Barron's. I occasionally get an individual issue and go through it. And um, the stocks are too big for us. So I'm not going to find opportunities that way. I don't find Barron's as useful as like American Banker or something like that. Um, I don't find it as useful as um, the blogs that I read. Uh but it might sometimes say something that alerts me to something unusual. I mean, I, the things that I want most, I guess, are to read these little tidbits about something that tells me that something's crazy, either very cheap or very expensive in some part of the market and tips me off to that. And then that gets me to look into that area or that things are changing in some industry or whatever. And sometimes I guess you could find things like that there. But, um, but it, you were talking about consensus things. It's very consensus. Um although theoretically it has a little compared to other things it has a little bit of a value and um active type bent mm-hmm. compared to like what you would read generally um but I know I haven't really found it to be useful I haven't even gotten as much success with Barrons as Charlie did where he found one good idea and I've never found an idea that I bought based on Barrons um but I you know it's just cuz it just covers individual stocks you used the example
0: you related that one time to corner berkshire that now you've read it for years and you've found one idea off of there.
1: Yeah, which I think people thought I was making a negative comment on. No, I was making a positive. Um and they didn't like the stock. Not that they didn't like it, but no one talked about it. So if you can find you can find the thread. You, you didn't comment it. on the thread. I didn't comment you on, said the on the thread. No, 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 someone oh no no. What I mean is someone on the thread yeah. said Someone tried to start a thread on a stock, basically, and say, what about this stock and stuff? And other people just weren't interested. And I was like, wow, maybe one person commented or something. And I saw that. And I thought, oh, this is really interesting. And the other people were like, eh, it looks okay, pass, you know, or whatever. It doesn't look that great one way or the other. Yeah, sure, nice company. And uh, I I thought, yeah, it looks really good. Um, And that's a framing thing. I think people said it looks fairly priced. That's the best one, I guess, to find. Those th- are the situations where, like, I can think of a couple of stocks mm-hmm. where I'm like,
0: I look at it, I'm like, yeah, it looks fairly priced. And then I look five years later, four years later, I'm like, wow, it's just
1: continuing to go up. <laughs> right. Because it's a good business. Yeah. so yeah, it's great. People, people say, so they kind of said like, oh, yeah, this is one of the best in this industry I've seen. Um, but, you know, it's kind of a fair price for it now, right? So we've kind of missed the boat already. Yeah. Um, but I thought, you know one of the best in the industry, and you you're getting it at a fair price. that sounds good to me. Mm-hmm. um, and it was an industry that I may be understood or whatever. but um yeah the the issue would be more with those that are like if it's a really high price, obviously um and also another thing is despite being value investors, we do not have a um aversion to paying an all- time high for a stock at all. Um, And some value investors do. Do you even look at a chart? I do look at charts for some things for very long-term charts to see if they've created value over time and to see if something is odd, if something is not recognized in the market. Mm -hmm. So this was a good example. I was looking at something and I wrote this stuff down. So it has like a 30-year history of the stock. It always trades at a PE of like around 10, less than 10, something like that. It's never had a really good PE. And reported earnings, ROE isn't amazing, but it's okay. But what's odd about it is if you look, the company's probably trading at half of what companies like that normally trade at, right? And um, $1 invested like 30 years ago would now be like $20 in the stock, which means like $40 at what I would consider intrinsic value normally for this stock. It was trading at normal multiple, right? S&P is like eight. So this stock has over several decades beaten the S&P. And yet its multiple has always been lower than the S&P. Its multiple still lower than the S&P. So um, maybe it'll never be recognized. But on the other hand, it's outperforming. It's creating value that way. So I do look at it that way. If a stock has created a significant amount of value over time, and yet the P has always been low, then that interests me. Mm-hmm. If it has not, then there's a question of why that is. And sometimes it makes a lot of sense why it is. The price, the the um stock price was too high, so I forgive that. So it would never bother me that Microsoft went nowhere for 15 years. The company kept getting better. Mm -hmm. It just was too expensive, not their fault. Um, Or if the company's changed over 30 years or something, you know. Um, But I do look at long-term chart only from that perspective, especially for things that are like asset plays and stuff. Try to get an idea of the story of what happened Mm -hmm. in the past and what they invested in and stuff. That's another way to do it, too, is if a company's doing a lot of M&A and stuff like that, you do maybe want to look at a chart because – I see sometimes like, say, stock like Intel or something, people say, look at the ROE. The ROE in the core business is great. Everything they've acquired is bad. So, I mean, the return on equity is bad on that stuff. And it's the way that it works in the accounting does not give you an accurate um, showing of that because sure, they buy something you know. and then they they um they charge it off. Yeah. So like people say the ROE in the S&P is like, I don't know, 20% or something. It, it's like 8 I mean, if you look long-term, the actual cash return after taxes generated is very close to the actual stock going up. So if the ROE was really like 20%, why isn't the stock market going up 20% a year on average or something? Surprise, not surprisingly, the real like owner's earnings ROE when you factor in things like M&A and all those sorts of things is really close to the return in the stock price over time. Mm-hmm. And so very long stock charts, I think, are okay that way. I wonder if that's a interesting screen to run. So, just the Kager in the stock
0: Mm -hmm. and its history versus, um, you know, like trading
1: at a lower multiple, less than a market multiple. And if it's done really good, that could be a good way to look for interesting ideas. Well, that's a way of framing it, right? Because if you think about it, um, theoretically, what you want is the intrinsic value of the stock should be equalizing the forward return uh, versus the market. So, if the market's going to do 10% a year in the future, then this stock. Will it do 10% a year? Mm-hmm. If it is going to do 10% a year from th- this price, then, you know, it's fairly valued. If it would do better or worse, then, you know, that would adjust it. So, like, we can use book value as a really good example. If, But you could use any number, but use book. If the price to book is two, okay, does that equalize the return in this stock? And, you know, we do... Calculations like that all the time. I remember calculating for Carmart. What I thought was the appropriate measure to use is their receivables. Mm-hmm. So their loan book after um their provision for losses and how fast that would grow. And my feeling was as long as you bought at a reasonable price to the loan book, if the loan book's gonna compound at 15% a year, then the stock will compound at 15% a year. Well, that was
0: a lot of the way you think about banks too, the growth in deposits per share.
1: Right, but there are banks for which that wouldn't be true because they're not creating any real value, and you can see that if you look at long-term charts and you read things about that that way. You know, the ones that I like that way clearly create value, um, in that the deposits are funding things at much lower cost when you take in interest expense and uh, non-interest expense. Excuse me, um, if. We don't talk about it, but there's lots of small banks that really don't create value because their non interest expense is too high. They're inefficient. Their mm-hmm. efficiency ratios are too high. And so, um, even though people say, oh, they have this spread based on like, you know, the Fed and all that stuff, well, the spread gets eaten up by the corporation basically. You know, it, you're just paying for the salaries of the people working at the bank. Um, you're not, and, and rent and things like that. There's not really much left over for shareholders. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So, if you go into a bank and there's a
0: ton of artwork and they have. Hundreds of different offices and stuff like that. It's probably not something that you'd be interested in.
1: Yeah, I mean, the, we talk about that. Banks are like railroads. Um, operational efficiency is a big differentiator. Um, we walked to a bank one time and he was like, "We definitely have the servant mentality here." Mm-hmm. Jeff just his eyes started glistening when he heard that. <laughs> um, well, I think they started gl- glistening when I saw the um, uh, the. Uh, wh- what they were operating out of, yeah. yeah. No, the best thing a bank could tell me is that we're not going to open more branches. Mm-hmm. I mean, not that we're not, gonna, but like the, we think we can grow without having to take on a lot of new branches stuff. Everyone's always excited about the growth, the growth, the growth. Yeah, right. Expanding. But then operating expenses are going to mm-hmm. go up. What I liked about that, where you're talking about that bank, is I one to my questions before going in. Is are they going to keep operating expenses really low? We've talked about this before. I'm not a big believer in the good to great kind of thing. I'm the believer in cheap from the beginning. Uh, having read a lot of business books and things, the best operators, with few exceptions, were born very cheap and sometimes like had it forced on them. In some cases, their financial position was bad and stuff, so they had to do it or whatever, but they were very cheap from the start. I always say that. I, and, I always say that. Yeah, and the the... It's very hard. Brutal
0: capitalists, just so cost conscious.
1: Yeah. It's very hard to instill in a successful organization, you could be making a lot more money. It's like impossible. So when people ask like how much money could, when we talk about like monopoly type things, when we talk about like the FICO's and Dun & Bradstreet's and IMS Health and things like that, um, like what could their margins be? No one knows. What could Moody's margins be? No one knows. Because they never had to run the business that Aggressively to mm-hmm. control operating costs, and so a monopoly sometimes could have much better uh, margins than it does. You can see that with like um, Buffett's uh, with Cap Cities, the exact same media properties could be run by Cap Cities with like a fifty percent EBITDA margin when other people have been running them with thirty yeah, percent.
0: It was like when I read uh, a couple months ago Six Flags their earnings report. They were talking about it's really COVID's really forced them to. Basically, open up everything and look to cut costs, and they changed their lettuce supplier. And they were saying how oh, that's going to help them save yeah. money. I mean, it sounds so stupid, but I mean, like you've used the example of a bank, for example, too, that they would uh, save all of the paper clips that they received yeah, in the mail and stuff like that. Turns. Right? It's a famous one, yeah yeah. yeah, yeah. And it's like, okay, are they actually saving a lot of money from that? No, but it's a culture thing. Right? Well, and on the phone with the CFO, that, yeah. and he says, and I ask about. With everyone expand this is a right. nice little talent and he says yeah you know as i sit in my crappy office looking at the kroger across the street yeah you're like that's just you know it's a culture thing basically right. like no we don't want to expand
1: yeah um you don't want to take on like operating expenses in advance of things that you know you would do that would get a good return on that now it can make sense sometimes to do that but we talked about that you just we talked about OTC Markets, for instance. OTC Markets is not focused on cutting costs to the bone and stuff. I don't know if they could and how well they would do doing that, but they're a growth oriented company. They're very focused on like the, the, what do you want to call it, network effects or whatever advantages they have in terms of the um, marketplace that they're facilitating, basically. So they're very, Concerned from a like um, growth perspective, and from what I would call like a um, moat perspective or whatever, those are kind of the the strategy that they have. You get very little evidence that they're focused on an operational type uh, advantage that way. Um, and with some companies, you do. Um, they talk a lot about operating expenses and stuff. I mean, it's a big clue if a bank tells talks to you a lot about their rent. Mm-hmm. Um. A lot of banks won't talk about that. Just be—it's not a huge item, but it is an item that when people ask about like economies of scale, there you've found just one of your biggest economies of scale possible. If you have a lot of earning assets versus a small base of rent, that's a lot better than the opposite. Mm-hmm. You know,
0: I love the culture of like, if it's not broke, don't fix it. Uh huh.
1: Be like, well, they'll fix it if it has
0: to be done, like for like capex reasons and stuff like that. Yeah, no expenses, all that sort right. of things.
1: Um, and so there's a lot of stories like, you know, in Barron's or Wall Street Journal whatever, would be about cost cutting, but I'm more interested in the stories that are like, they were cheap from the beginning uh, and focus on that. And, you know, I mean, like as an example, um, what value investors tend to do and lots of people tend to do is they look at two companies in an industry and they figure, well, their margins will converge and stuff. That's often an argument for it. Um, so take an example like IAA, in insurance uh, auctions, and uh, for auctioning off wrecked cars and stuff like that. And Copart, right? Those are the two competitors in that. Now, I've read the book about Co- about Copart. Junk to gold. Yeah. And I'd listened to like all their earnings calls for a long time and stuff. And um, so you hear the founder and also the son-in-law who, who took over things later. Um, and... It's not impossible that they'll end up in the same place eventually. Now, a lot of that would probably be Copart getting lazier about some things. But I can tell you that the corporate DNA of Copart was very different than um, others in the same industry eventually and how it came out of it, just like Walmart was or something, you know. Mm -hmm. And eventually margins at Walmart can converge with others in terms of Walmart can get lazy about things. But from where they were founded and how they thought about things is very different from other competitors in the rest of the country. And so it would take a very long time for Sears to think about operations the same way that Walmart was when Walmart was small and Sears was huge. And it's almost impossible to reverse that. You can't like have someone take over Sears and say, oh, we got to look at all that Walmart's doing and think that way. But if you had it from the beginning, then it's something that you can kind of focus on continuing to do. Um, And I kind of am a big believer in that actual returns in business tend to have a lot to do with operational efficiency.
0: Do you think GE was big on operational efficiency? Didn't Jeffrey uh that, that CEO, didn't he travel with like three private jets at a time or
1: something like oh, that? Well, the the famous thing is that they had a a, a follow jet, yeah, yeah, in case the first one had yeah issues. Yeah. In
0: case it blows up in the <laughs> air, you got a
1: second one behind it. Um Yeah. Uh yeah, it's it was an organization that was That's famous for those sorts of things. Yeah. Um yeah, no, it actually was never famous for those sorts of things. But, you know, those are very big companies. I'm and you know, that's a common theme. Every, I, I've spoken to a lot of CEOs and management
0: teams. The best ones are always just so cost conscious. I think that's just the greatest quality to look out for.
1: Yeah, that is a thing to think about, though, with economies of scale because one issue is that while economies of scale are quite large in some industries, the gap between the worst and best in terms of operational efficiency, absent economies of scale is probably as big or bigger. Mm -hmm. So, um, A business that has an advantage in terms of size and things like that is that's good. But if it has a different culture in terms of cost, that may not be able to give it – it may not be able to have it um, maintain that advantage over someone else on a net basis. And value investors, I think, tend to focus on like this moat idea and and, um, research on microeconomic stuff that has to do with like – Porous Five Forces and, and and economies of scale and things like that, which are kind of easy to explain theoretically. But if you have two airlines and one airline has a big advantage um, in terms of its competitive position with economies of scale and thing, things like that, it's not at all impossible that if they're cost-wise in terms of the way they run their organization in the bottom half and they're competing with someone who's in the top half about how they run things, it really can be just... You know that that unfortunately can mean that they're not at an advantage. It's very easy to squander that away. Mm-hmm. Um, and some I don't know if some people believe in that or not. I read uh, the second edition of Bruce Greenwald's book. He doesn't talk a lot about operational things, but he does seem to believe that they exist. But F- I th- one. competition uh, no value investing. Uh, yeah, yeah. The so he there, yeah so he talks a huge amount of competitive position stuff, and he talks relatively little about um, operational efficiency. And yet, I think a meaningful amount of returns in in um, stocks comes not from having a competitive advantage, but from having superior operators.
0: It's so beautiful if you have a business that operates very efficiently and very cost conscious, and they do start to experience some growth when you start to see that operating leverage kick in.
1: Yeah, it's incredible to see. Yeah, and unfortunately, that you know things can go in the opposite direction. Of course, and, everyone likes to talk about the upside. <laughs> yeah, and and there are the you know over time. Most companies do lose a focus on um, containing costs and stuff. That is a young, small company type thing that is rarely present in very big companies and very hard to maintain.
0: Well, we've talked about that before. If
1: you're already under the
0: gun and they're still like dumb about costs, you know, and stuff like that and expenses, it just kind of is a tell be like, how incompetent are they? I understand when times are great, mm-hmm. it's easy to, I guess, easier to um, have expenses, you know, get a little bit more bloated, but if they're, going through a rough patch or anything like that, and they're still, you know, having issues with
1: that. I'm just kind of like, that's, I don't understand that. Yeah. And with the active reading thing, that's one of the things you can do because they ne- they rarely mention it. No one circles it. And, you know, but it's one of the first things I do is looking at operating lines and seeing how they're doing versus especially what really matters is versus gross profit. Everyone does versus revenue. But I mean, what really matters is gross profit. So unless you're able to r- raise your gross profit by as much or more, in dollar amounts, than your percentage from dollar amounts, um, than you are. So if your your gross profit goes from 100 million to 108 million, then you better not have your operating expenses go from 10 to 19. Because mm-hmm. yeah. even though net you just made a lot more money, yeah. you, you actually had a nine percent increase in your operating expenses on an eight percent increase in your gross profit. And if sustained for a period of time, that's not good. Mm-hmm. Now no one can do it every year, but you do really, and at least you want them to talk about that. To, Like, why are your operating expenses growing faster than your gross profit? Mm -hmm. Because if that's happening in the long run, that means that gross profit is translating to something that's less and less valuable. And we see that with Village Supermarket. And that's one of the things I think is fascinating about that. For 10 or 15 years or whatever, people complain in that stock about like, oh, well, it must be competition's tough and whatever and those things, which might be true. But actually, if you look at their gross profit performance, it's really good. Mm -hmm. It's perfectly good. It hasn't deteriorated a lot. And usually that means there's a problem that's kind of fixable and stuff. Whereas the thing that always warns me off and worries me that we've talked about is deterioration, in the gross profitability of the business. Um, That's often a big tip off to what's going to happen in the future. So they don't talk about it. Like our bottom line improved, but actually gross profitability decreased a bit. Yeah. Well then you, Cut Which costs and driver, things, you know. Right? Yeah, so it, it you know, it, or you just r- your sales grew so fast that it, you know you did okay. But if your gross margin keeps coming down, and then it probably means that there's more competitive issues there. They should be talking about you know what that means competitively if you're uh, having higher costs or lower prices. Mm-hmm. Got it. Cool. Well, I want to thank everybody so much for tuning in with the both of us here today on the
0: Focus Compounding Podcast. Follow me on Twitter if you're not. Uh, the next episode that we are going to upload is actually Q&A. Um, and about you know once a week or every two weeks, I do a call for questions where you could ask uh, investing questions um, of Jeff, and we'll answer them on the podcast. So at Focus Compound, um, be sure to uh, follow me there. Make sure you hit that subscribe button on YouTube and the iTunes app and Spotify. Thank you so much for all the support, and we will see you in the next podcast.